Welcome, friends and fiends. This is your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff. And I'm here to tell you about an exciting giveaway that Warner Brothers Discovery and Colton Classic Films LLC has put together to build your 4K Ultra HD film collection on digital. We are giving away four codes which contain digital 4K Ultra HD versions of Rebel Without a Cause, Maltese Falcon, and Cool Hand Luke. These are films that you absolutely must know as a film buff. You can get this code by being one of the lucky four people we pull from our newsletter list. So go to coltonclassicfilms.com slash newsletter and give us your email and your name and we'll sign you up for the newsletter and we will enter you in the competition. That's all you got to do. So please go ahead and do that. The contest ends on April 30th and we will send out the winning codes on May 1st. Thank you so much for being a listener. And here's your episode of Colton Classic Films Podcast. Welcome to Colton Classic. <laughs> All right. Welcome, fiends and friends, to another episode of Cult and Classic. With you, as always, is your host, Nate Wyckoff, film reviewer for hornews.net and stand-up comic. Uh, with me today, I have my good friend, Jeffrey Tucker. How you doing, Jeff? What up? I swear I'm not an alien set on... Uh, world domination i swear well hopefully you're not a building fire either uh (laughs) along with jeff and i we have mandy how are you doing mandy i'm great today thank you for having me yeah i'm excited this is this is a good one this is uh, actually uh one of my favorite movies and a movie that i hadn't seen before that was recommended so we watched these the theme for this week's episode is aliens in the apartment uh, and there's some other things. There's actually a lot that is similar. I'm always surprised when we do these episodes how similar the movies are when it just looks like the theme is the same, and, you know, it's pretty crazy. So, mm. uh, first up, we have Critters 3. Uh, that is, I believe, one, uh, three of five currently, although there's a TV series and some other stuff happening. And then we have uh, the 80s film, which I'd actually never heard of, but it seems like either people have heard of Critters 3 or they've heard of... Uh, this film, Batteries Not Included, but they haven't heard of both. And so I assume Critters 3 was the more uh, the more mainstream one since it was in theaters. But Batteries, I mean, Steven Spielberg produced uh, Batteries Not Included. And technically the film title uh, is Asterisk Batteries Not Included, which mm-hmm. is, uh, I'm sure in this day and age, they would never allow that. That's, that's craziness. Um, it would be hashtag Batteries Not Included. I was definitely on the opposite end of that spectrum because I remember watching Asterisk Batteries Not Included many times as a child, but never Critters 3 or Critters 1 or Gremlins or any of them. (laughs) All right. So we're going to start with Critters 3. Uh, I actually love this film, but we'll talk about it. Uh, The plot for this movie is, if you don't know, Critters or uh, Krites, as they're called, are little alien furballs with really nasty faces and like lots of teeth. And they roll like Sonic the Hedgehog. And they also can shoot quills that have like a sedative in them. And uh, they're, they're in the first two films, they're hunted by alien bounty hunters that are trying to catch them. They're, they're like criminalized creatures that, that breed really quickly. And I don't even know if they breed. They just have eggs and multiply and they eat everything. So this is the third installation. Uh, and there's only one returning character from the other films. Uh, and then a little add-on after the credits or mid-credits. Uh, but the big draw for this film, uh, for people looking back, is that it's the feature film debut of Leonardo DiCaprio. 
Um, and I got to say, I, I don't remember how old he is at this time. We figured it out. He, at, he steps into the game a pretty good kid actor. I mean, there's no... Mm-hmm. I thought he did very well in this movie. Oh, um, yeah. And, uh, and it was nice. So I, what, what, so I know what I think of this movie because I've seen it many times. Jeff, what's your take? Um, I, I mean, it was a cute little like, you know, film. I mean, if you're looking for, uh, you know, some, you know, something for a younger audience that's kind of in that horror genre, I think this is the thing that fits kind of that type of bill. It's cute. Uh, you know, none of our, you know, favorite characters ever really like get super, super close to danger. You know, it's kind of like that, Mm -hmm. like kind of Goonies scare type thing. Um, uh, you know, like the, I, the thing that surprised me about this this movie is the the like the very unlikable characters were dealt with very rapidly, like right. they were they did not stick around. Like it was there was no um, kind of brewing of of the come up and say it was just this is a very unlikable character, you know, and and goodbye, um, and uh, you know all all of our favorite characters make it to the end, so it, it really does fit that kind of young, yeah, um, kind of young audience feel and you know they're adorable you know they're off. <laughs> I mean, they're I little love, little bitey creatures the, but they're adorable the, the Troida brothers there's three brothers uh special effects designers who who made the critters and they're involved in this one and the other the other two previous films as well and i i i love it i love it uh we'll, <laughs> we'll get into my obsession with critters uh mandy how about you oh man so um this was like 100 percent not my jam as a kid <laughs> <laughs> and it it pretty much still is not but i do definitely like appreciate the wacky hijinks of like the menacing uh critter characters uh their individual personalities as like puppets um and to differentiate them from each other it's not just like a whole army of like the same monster coming at you like they definitely have um some separation in personality there which is kind of cool to watch um but yeah it's it was, um, I was just like, oh, I, I, they weren't even on my radar, I guess, as a kid, or I knew they might be too scared of them. It was super serious. I was basically 30 years old since I was like five. So it was just like, <laughs> it was just not my jam. I was super happy to watch this and be inexperienced and stuff. So hopefully I can bring some perspective from like, like a new set of eyes through the conversation. Awesome. And I have to say, for anyone who's not interested, or who isn't not interested, I don't know why you're listening, man. If you're not, um, <laughs> if, if you've not seen the previous Critters, the two films, it's not necessary, I don't think, but because there is a little recap at the beginning that's also sort of unnecessary. But I, like I a weird, like, like, montage, like, yeah, recap. it's one of those it's 80s montages. Like, like previously seen on Critters. <laughs> it, was, it felt like that was one of my um, WTF moments of the movie right. that I down was just like did they just insert like the preview for the prior movies they did and what's funny about it is normally when you do that i've seen this in tons of 80s movies and although this movie came out in 1991 it definitely has the 80s feel with a little bit of the early 90s saved by the bell vibe but probably with the fashion but like mm-hmm. the the clips that they showed in that beginning segment um to sort of recap they're completely nonsensical and out of sequence. Like, there's no way mm-hmm. I feel like they could tell you anything about the movies whatsoever, except mm-hmm. what the fuck did I just watch? Do I need to go back and watch the other two? And then the movie itself really has nothing to do with the previous two mm-hmm. movies, except for the fact that these are critters that they're dealing with. Um, mm-hmm. I also think, you mentioned Gremlins. Critters is 
was is always kind of treated as the knockoff of gremlins and i mean it is mm -hmm. uh it is but it's personally i enjoyed it more uh because they both have like you said that sort of and jeff you said this too they're kind of a safe almost kid-friendly horror film mm -hmm. this is a little less so um the second one in fact despite being i think rated pg-13 has like a, a topless scene and things like that but i mean it's it's one of those it's 80s topless so it's just it's sort of not mm, i don't know it's just not a, a horrible uh terrifying thing they're kind of cute they're kind of funny they're crudely they joke like the, the difference is is that um gremlins when they grow up, like, you know, they're cute when they're gizmo. And then when they uh, eat after midnight, they turn into these ugly, you know, tall lizardish creatures. They're bad tempered. Critters are always bad tempered and they're both. They're kind of, they're cute, but then they have these really ugly faces. And I'm obsessed with them, I think, because they look a lot like my cat. Like she has, <laughs> she has those same Godzilla eyes, you know, that are, that are kind of ominous. And she usually has her mouth open with all her teeth showing. So, I find them super adorable. And, uh, and, and I do like, you said this, Mandy, as well. They did a good job of making them all differentiated. Um, again, mm -hmm. this is like Gremlins. Gremlins does the same thing. But uh, they really, they each end up having just a smidge of personality in addition to the, the different design, you know, the different facial markings and things like that. And you kind mm -hmm. of look for them. By, by the end, when they're, they're, they're dying or getting exploded or for whatever, you're sort of looking like, wait, where's the one with the with the markings or the one with the bleach damage, you know, like, um, so I thought that was kind of fun. And I also think something that steps this up from a lot of the other knockoff Gremlins movies, cause there are so many, I mean, the worst probably, I mean, I don't even know the worst, the most well-known bad example would be Hobgoblins, which Mystery Science Theater did at one point, which is mm. truly a travesty. And they kickstarted a sequel that came out a few years ago too, um, <laughs> which God bless Kickstarter. Uh, but yeah, it's sort of, they did a good job of doing the animatronics, the puppetry, and even when like the puppets are flying through the air, like there's a kind of goofy scene where um, the, the, the young female lead uh, chucks like this barrel of something or, or it's, a, it's an umbrella stand down the stairs and they get bowled over a la Donkey Kong and they all fly through the air kind of slow motion. They actually look like they're creatures flying through the air rather than just puppets thrown to the ground which is usually what happens in the cheap movies, you know? Um, so I, I appreciated the mop cam as well. The mop cam, <laughs> yes. Yes, there was some good, I like the cinematography. The director for this is Christine Peterson. So that's uh, interesting that assuming that's the real name because Christine hasn't done anything since I think 97 or so. Um, mm. Assuming that's the real name, then she's, it's a woman, which is a nice touch. And I kind of believe it because no characters have, no female characters are heavily sexualized in this film, which would be <laughs> very, I mean, if it was Michael Bay, you know, the 14 year old girl would, you know, have like a two sizes too small training bra and it would just be a disaster. Um, and that's what I think about Michael Bay. But yeah, <laughs> it's not there. Um, and also interesting to note is it certainly could be because Christine Peterson has done some um, risque projects. The last film uh, that she did was uh, a grunge girl band movie with kind of a, a, a sexy lesbian twist called slaves to the underground in 97 um again i don't even think though it's, it's really designed for the the male gaze as much as it would be if it were a male director which makes me think that probably it is in fact um a woman the only reason i question it at all is because a lot of times when you can't find a lot of 
there's only a small segment of years where people direct from the 90s and the 80s. Oftentimes they're mm. using a pseudonym and it just hasn't been, it hasn't really been released to IMDb or something like that. So who knows? Um, but the, the story, like you said, both of you, it is kind of light, but there's also, I feel like it's a little bit more horror-ish, which is why Critters probably has a stronger flow in the horror community than say a Gremlins does in this mm -hmm. respect, although they love that too. It's, it's got more blood um, and it's got, uh, you know, characters do die and get eaten. You know, yeah. like Gremlins, you just assume a couple of characters die. You don't really know they die, but, uh, but yeah, they die. Well, I mean, like the, the, yeah, like the first guy definitely has like a battle, um, mm. that, that perishes. Um, but like, e even like the, the fight, like the final blow or whatever mm. is just the, the critter kind of rolling across the floor. And <laughs> then you see like the, ah! you know, the, yes. like the, yes. the mouth kind of coming at you. So it is a little bit implied, but he definitely did have a bloody battle with this yes. thing before. Yes. Sure. Which I like love. The thing out where you think he's going to be okay, maybe for a second, and then no. Yeah. No, 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 no. There's more. There's more of these critters. Yes. Um, but like, I, I liked it because it really it it was shot in a way I was like, oh, like you know, you and I could go in grab like some puppets and we could like we could film this type of scene. Like mm -hmm. it's. It like it works, but it's it it it, wor it works and it's so simple, right? Like yeah, the scenes that you're like the wide shots are are basically just you know like a dude holding a puppet and kind of you know writhing about, and then the the close shots are you know a puppeteer just off off the camera, and so yep. it's like really like it really is a shot really nice where they blend those two things together, yeah, um, and it creates like a nice flow, but it's it's like it literally is just like a silly like little you know furry puppet like it's mm -hmm. so simple what absolutely. they're doing um, absolutely yeah and, so and I, I enjoyed that the camera work i think you're right the camera work is is good and this series is not um it's it's no stranger to good horror directing too and where you've got creative shots and it's always had that fun vibe which is um in the last entry critters 2 was uh directed by mick garris very well-known horror director who's done a thousand movies that 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 we all know and love um and I think, and I think it's interesting too to note that the screenwriter is um, the co-scripter of the Crow film, Brandon Lee's final film, uh, which most people, myself included, really enjoy. Uh, so it, he's done a lot of of good stuff. He's also written a lot of horror schlock that I would call probably not the greatest stuff. Um, and I think that's okay. That's David Shaw, David J. Shaw, um, and he wrote. He was one of the writers on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2006, which I thought was not so bueno. Uh, but he's also written some some other things like the the 97 series The Hunger. Um, he wrote Leatherface Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, which is hilarious because that is the um, first feature film uh, from, um, I don't know how to think of it, a couple of other big people that I can't think of right now. Uh, see but anyway no stranger to bringing new talent into the game so critters 3 was a good vehicle for leonardo dicaprio even though i think it's relatively forgotten in his uh in his history most people remember him on uh, i think growing pains probably before they remember this um which was another good stint for him if anybody is interested in checking it out so the plot for this movie is that 
Uh, it, it's super common for 80s and 90s movies. Wherever there's an apartment building that's the setting, there is an evil landlord who's trying to kick people out of their low rent, um, presumably rent controlled apartments to build big shopping malls or things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is exactly what is happening in this film. The critters just happen to hatch onto the situation. So in the beginning, we have um, uh, the, the little girl played by Amy Brook, uh, Brooks, who is um, still acting and still in a fair amount of, at least she was up through 2010, uh, has done a lot of horror films. Um, I think this was her best, but uh, you know, good for her. And she was also in uh, 95's Open Season, which is not the 3D animated film, but it's a Robert Wall vehicle. So any uh, Arliss fans can enjoy that. I think, so the, the kids end up, both DiCaprio and um, Amy Brooks characters, end up at like a rest area where I guess everyone is ending up for some unknown reason, including um, DiCaprio's stepdad, who happens to be the landlord as it is revealed. And you know right Coincidence. away- Coincidence. He's a douche. You know right away. Um, there's no- there's no question about that. He walks up to uh, Amy Brooks' father's character and is like, who's changing a flat tire and is like, oh, life sucks, huh? Literally smoking a cigar as he says it. You just, it's just douchey all the way around. Um, and then the family, uh, Amy Brooks gets back in an argument with her dad because their mom died and he sort of won't, he won't try and move on. He doesn't connect with her. He's just like, yeah, go do this, go do that, whatever. I don't really get his character arc really because they don't dig into it. It seems like he's he's like, I want to have fun and let's go. We've gone on this vacation because we're a family and we're gonna have fun. And then he's like, uh, wasn't the same, was it? And she's like, it was, it was good. And he's like, just be be real. It wasn't the same. I'm like, what do you be real? What? She's like a 14 year old girl or something and trying to trying to hoist your feelings up. I thought that was a little a little weak the father-daughter thing yeah i mean in like in you know their next kind of big scene together he's like they're eating pasta and he's just like like i am just done you know like with yeah. this moment or whatever and it's just like get out of get out of my hair yeah and that's this is john like, dad be a responsible adult please yeah. and he's like nah how about tomorrow uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is, uh, and like I said, uh, this is John Calvin plays the father who is, it's weird because he's in the whole movie, but he's drugged. He, he gets shot with one of the quills pretty early on. And so you really, you get a lot of him front loaded and then you get like none of him yeah. for the rest of the thing. Um, and I think that it's, he plays the part fine. It's just not that not that important uh you're supposed to have this revelation moment at the end where he's like i love you my daughter and maybe he's gonna fall in love with the you know um telephone line repair woman who lives in the apartment too and all that could happen but you know it's it, it's really un it's unimportant yeah there's also like like what was the importance of like the train company or whatever is like it, it that felt like a revelatory moment where oh, he was like I forgot, oh yeah. i'm gonna quit this company but like I didn't really see how that necessarily linked with like, like progress, right? Um, for the character, yeah, um, I, I didn't. And and the and he, it's insinuated that he's going to have a romance with Catherine Cortez's character, who's she plays the uh, Marsha, the telephone repair woman that uh, is off, sort of kind of goaded by uh, Annie, the the Amy Brooks character's 
little girl into being like, hey, are there any jobs there? AKA maybe my dad could have, so we'll stop being a douche and stop leaving every weekend or whatever. Uh, it, again, it all goes out the window as soon as the critters arrive. And I'm totally fine with that because <laughs> it's not particularly strong as a family drama. Um, yeah. It's a lot more fun when the critters just show up. Um, yeah. And my apologies, there, there's actually, uh, let's see, five critters films and uh and uh or six four five six six critters film in a television show and um uh there's a supposed uh 3d ride coming to vegas i don't know if corona has tossed that away but it's going to be critters 3d in mandalay bay which i will literally go to las vegas to see okay <laughs> i that's totally fine with me I, I totally love it and that's all good and a uh, spoiler alert if you've watched the first two and you remember when they gather into a ginormous building-sized ball of fur and roll through the town, demolishing and eating everything, we don't get any giant giant balls here. There's actually only a handful of critters in this film, but they do make consistent appearances. As soon as they arrive, I feel like we get our critters fill. I don't think that, I didn't feel like, wow, I got to see the monster for two seconds. You know, like it's, it's, not, uh, it's not Iron Man 2 where I'm like, oh, I got to see Iron Man for a good three minutes. What a... What a what a swing and swell swell deal here. Yep. So what did you guys think? So, like you said, the bad characters are sort of killed as soon as they come into contact with the critters, and then it's sort of I, I I saw in some reviews they were comparing it to Critters takes on the towering inferno because then you know uh, uh, Marsha's character kills one of them early on as soon as she sees it because she has a flare because the power's gone out, Oops. so she has a flare and she shoves it in its mouth and then it starts a fire in the basement which prevents them from leaving uh at, sort of at one point and uh and and the fire element i don't know that it was actually that important right because they do actually go back down amy's character goes back down through the, the elevator, elevator shaft. Yeah, right yeah. and can leave and then um good old returning character um uh Charlie, uh, Don Keith Opper, who's been in, who's in the original four, at least, um, he's like, he's, he comes in, he's like, take me to your family. Cause he's of course hunting critters. And so you're kind of like, uh, well, okay. Maybe she should stay outside. Like, <laughs> right. Like, no, no, <laughs> the no. The building's on fire. Yeah, like, no, maybe no. you shouldn't go in. I don't know. Um, I, I do think one really excellent thing this film does is it totally understands plot and it moves along quickly. Like it constantly, that, that old adage, you know, like um, your job as a writer is to get the main character up a tree and then throw rocks at him, right? Mm -hmm. Like that thing to make it worse and worse and worse. This film has that. Like everyone is kind of in a weird place, you know, or at least, you know, the main characters, uh, DiCaprio's character has a shitty relationship with his stepfather. Um, and then uh, Amy... Brooke's character has a bad relationship with her father and and a dead mom, which you know I, I guess is important too, right? And uh, and that's how it starts. And then critters show, and then you've got us a crappy. I forget the guy's name. Frank. He's the uh, the maintenance guy who's trying to help the um, stepfather drive everyone out of the apartment building. He then has uh, like what's the word? He gets eaten by critters. I guess that's really the only word there. Like he just shows up. He's a total douchebag. He talks like mm -hmm. that. He gets eaten. And over then, the top douchebag. Over the top mm -hmm. douchebag. Right. Yeah. I mean, he played. The, I think he played the part. Which well. I think. 
Yeah, I think yeah. it's good though for like a younger audience, like that sure. that kind of like really over the top character, and it's like you know, there's no room for you know any kind of subtlety or variation in mm-hmm. in your views of this person. He's not a good guy. Everybody dislikes him. You know, done. You know, it, yeah. it, it it's it's easy for you know younger audiences to. to and and by the way, he's a great actor, Jeffrey Blake. You might recognize. He's one of those character actors you recognize. He's been Emmy nominated. He's won some SAG awards. He was in Forrest Gump as Wesley. He was in Contact as Fisher. Um, he's if you're a, a, he's done video game voices. He was in the Technomancer, little RPG from a few years ago. Lots of stuff. Um, and he really does have a presence. He walks in, he's over the top, he's in your face, like, man, I'm a jerk. <laughs> and then uh, laughing at other people's misfortune. Then he gets eaten by the critters and you totally don't feel bad about it. Um, and then as soon as that happens, critters start kind of trying to attack everyone. There's all those com- comical scenes where like, oh, it's gonna come up and get the heavy set lady through the laundry chute, but oh, she shuts it just in time and it goes, meh back down right yeah and it does like a cute like sonic the hedgehog thing where it goes yeah Yeah. which by the way was a cool effect i was kind of like man how did they get that spinning effect like i don't know if they put it on a drill bit and sort of you know photoshopped or cropped it out of the shot like i'm not sure how they did that but it was a nice touch could have done with a string too maybe uh okay i don't know how your string skills are but mine are certainly not that that good well yeah Um, you just like wrap it up and then pull it out you have to pull it really fast though hmm I, I'm gonna I'm gonna question your. Story. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do a recording for you. I'm gonna question, <laughs> question your dreidel knowledge. Um, all right. I mean, you could literally just. I mean, you could do a string, right? You just do the drill at the end of the string, right? You wrap the thing up so it's tightly wound with a, basically wrapped with the string. Then you just run the okay. drill. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. There's still a drill involved. There's still a yeah, drill involved. Yeah, but it's off screen, and so it's easier to get rid of the the, and the also, string. I love and how also, we've gone into the whole like uh, re-engineering. Oh. Right, and that's and let's get that out of the way. Jeff and Mandy are both engineers, so this yeah. this creative writing master, you know, student is is at a disadvantage. Um, <laughs> get wrecked. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so so you have that, and then shit starts to hit the fan, and I think it ramps up pretty quick at that point once the critters are seen by the characters that don't immediately die. Right, like the heavyset lady gets attacked. Um, she's a great mm-hmm. character actress as well. Um, you've got, uh, and then it's, it's uh, Dana Bellamy plays Rosalie. And then you've got uh, everyone sort of trying to escape the critters by getting together and moving slowly up the building toward to try to get mm-hmm. to the roof. Um, you have this great, uh, it's just, and then the fire starts and then they can't get down because it's worse. And then all this stuff, it just, and then two of the characters are drugged. So everyone has to drag them around and two of the characters are elderly. And so you just have this upping of the tension, but it never it's never a scary movie, in my opinion. For kids, mm-hmm. it would be scary. For adults, it's just supposed to be that gremlins level of like entertaining mayhem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, there's actually, they and they, I appreciate that they went out of their way to do things with the characters that didn't involve the critters that were still moderately entertaining. Like um, when Marsha, the telephone lady, she's trying to patch into a, a telephone line on, off the roof and she ends up falling off the roof and hanging by a, by a cable like several inches from the ground in the parking lot and then spends the rest of the movie just trying to swing to the payphone. I enjoyed that gag a lot. I did too. <laughs> I did. And it actually, and it, and it worked. And she's actually upside down the whole time in all yeah. those shots swinging. And I mean, I kept thinking that I would get tired of it, but they didn't push it to that point. 
Yeah. Um, and I enjoyed that. I, I thought that that was a fun, you know. It was, it was I really, enjoyed the drama really of her struggle, you yeah. know, and like there's like like she like she didn't have enough hands, like she couldn't hold like the right. the telephone uh, machine, pick up the thing, and dial. Like she just didn't have like enough hands. And right. I just it really created this cute like <laughs> oh, uh, physical comedy bit. And spoiler alert. <laughs> fantastic moment where, like, like the recorded voice tells her she needs to put a quarter in. Yeah, she's like, oh, I need a fourth in. <laughs> just... And spoiler alert, she never gets to the phone. It's completely not how they get out, even though it's introduced yeah. early. And you're like, this is a brilliant resolution. She's a telephone person. She's getting to that phone line. Oh, nope, she doesn't. But she's close to a pay phone. Oh, nope, never happens. In fact, at the end, she just has to be let down once everyone is out and all the critters are dead. Um, so good. Yeah. Uh, so that, that made me happy. Uh, the, there's this really- wait, wait, wait. I want to just before we move on. My favorite part of the movie. So that was my second favorite. My favorite part of the movie was they were like talking about like getting a gun. Like, do you have like a gun? And the guy was like, oh, I have a gun. Oh, but I don't have like any powder or bullets or whatever. Right. Uh, and then like, like, what about a knife? Like a sharp knife. And this, and the the elderly lady in the yeah. apartment, like, you know, slides into frame, like wielding this massive cleaver, like she's been like <laughs> waiting her entire life to be like called into action with this. Yeah. This, this, so- this like Silent Hill esque, like <laughs> massive really cleaver. Was. Um, yeah, it's totally. I loved it. Yeah, that was a good. That was a good one, and um, and you and people will recognize her um, as as the grandma in Happy Gilmore. Uh, it's Frances Bay, and she's been acting for approximately three million years, uh, and she passed away in two thousand eleven at ninety two. So she's been in a lot of films, um, and she's great. And her husband, who is the alien, who ends up being the one that kind of caused the rescue because he made a call to uh, to. Don Keith Opper's character, Charlie, who is the, the one that knows about the critters before everything went down. Uh, he's played um, by Bill Zucker, who has also been in 30 gajillion things, both very good, mature actors. Um, uh, Corinne, rec- my wife, recognized him right away as uh, Mr. Finkel from Ace Ventura. So that's probably his most mm. well-known, well-known awesome. role. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so there's, there's some, some great mm-hmm. stuff some great character actors in this film that I think elevate some of the elements. Um, I'm going to play a clip. This is, this is probably what I think is the weakest moment in the movie is, is this scene right here. This is Leonardo DiCaprio's character um, talking to Amy Brooks character, the two kids, his dad, his stepdad has been eaten and, uh, and her mom is of course dead before the film starts. We came here to evict you. I didn't want to come. Pretty awful, huh? Yeah. I just can't believe he's dead. Josh. My mom died. Not like your dad. She died. I bet you didn't wish for your mom to die. Josh, you don't know that. You don't know that. Her mom could have been terrible and she could have wished for it every day. Doubtful, but you don't know that. But that scene, it just felt forced. I mean, because mm-hmm. uh, especially there's no real, 
like his dad is a jackass. Although I did like the touch that his stepdad is strict and a jerk and obviously trying to sucker these people out of their homes in which he's been paid money. He's has to pay money for relocation and he's trying to get them to leave on their own. So he doesn't have to do that. Um, and even though that he's like, he actively wants to teach DiCaprio's character, his stepson, these things so he can take over the business essentially. And which is a weird thing because it's actually kind of sweet. Like I'm a slumlord and I want you to succeed as a slumlord. Like mm. it was this weird thing, you know, it, it, and so I kind of, I thought that was an interesting way I think of trying to make him a, a person instead of just a villain. Uh, but we still don't really care when he gets eaten because he is a jackass. Um, he also does things that don't make sense. Like he want, they have him walking through the building when they break in before they, they find the critters and the critters eat, eat his stepdad. Where he's like, uh, you have to make a move on their own. And then like, he's like, hey, it's your landlord. I'm here to evict you. He's shouting into the hallways. I'm like, hey, that doesn't work. You can't, you can't evict them and not pay them. They have to leave. Like that didn't, I don't know if maybe if, if during directing time, they're like, this scene is boring. I need him to say something uh, to, you know, so I don't know what the deal with that was, but that was written in the last second. Right, right. Yeah. You know, um, just had him. He was just tired. It was the thirty-fourth shot of this stupid scene where they film him from the top of a staircase, and he's like, "I'm the landlord. I'm here with Victor. Get the hell out." Uh, yeah, I don't know if that was the case or not, but um, this scene where where DiCaprio's sort of like my my stepdad, like I wished him dead. Well, he did. He did like shut him in the room with the critters so I could understand the guilt. He was moderately, <laughs> but I mean, here here's the thing though. Like he, that moment felt forced. Like I, like I agree. Like that uh, the the kind of the end of that that little story arc that they were doing felt forced. But I, I thought it felt forced right off the beginning. It was like I hope you're dead, and he like shuts the door and the door's locked. It just was like it just was like uh, this whole premise is just it's like. It, it was like, oh, I know that this conversation is going to happen later sure. because of this moment. It was like, that, that was the whole reason that that happened was so he's like, you know, we'd have the guilt later. It just was like, eh. Well, and the I'll, whole I'll, thing... I'll, I'll, I'll leave it. They were adequately awkward teenagers. True, true. Like, that was, th that's the thing. Their play together was actually quite good. Like, when they meet in the parking yeah. lot in the beginning, like, mm -hmm. and I love, too, how basically the way they meet is Amy Brooks' character has a little brother, who is um, is actually played by twins, uh, who've been in good jillions of things, including Kindergarten Cop with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, but it, it's sort of like uh, Christian Cousins is one of the bros, the Cousins twins. Um, I sort of like how in the beginning they they meet because. Um, Amy Brooks and her brother are playing frisbee, and the frisbee goes into the like over the parking lot into the woods at this rest area. And the little <laughs> kid goes to get it, and DiCaprio's character shows up and grabs him with the wrist. Is like, "Hey, kid, get out of there! You could get hurt." And he kind of yells at him, and she comes like, "Don't yell at my brother!" And then they look at each other for a minute, and then the little brother picks up the frisbee and goes, "Let's play!" and runs away because that's totally how kids would be. Like the little kid just got scolded. A little kid gets scolded every day like mm -hmm. that's not he's not thinking this big mean man he's thinking hey this this kid is a kid um let's let's go let's play this thing and then they're like all right well let's go play catch and from that point on like they're kind of in a good relationship and it just it was a nice it was a nice realistic touch i felt that also sort of instantly set up that um differentiation between the adults and the kids like mm -hmm. the kids have their shit together more 
as we see, and the adults are the ones that have to sort of piece it together. Um, and so that was a nice moment, and that was really strong. But again, this scene where they're talking about their dead parents, like when Amy Brooks' character comes in, my mom died. You're like, so what? Like, <laughs> how does this relate at this moment? I know you're supposed to have a connection, but it's probably not going to be this one. Um, yeah. yeah, especially since well, we don't know. His original dad could have died too. We don't know that. Yeah. Well, let me, I just want to just back to the one final point on like the awkwardness of that first scene where this whole thing kind of set off is those two events were just too close. That, that's why it, it felt forced is if he was like in the car and said, I wish you were dead. Like they were having an argument. It's like, I wish you were mm -hmm. dead. And then later on this other thing happened. Mm -hmm. Then you have something compelling because the, putting those two events, I wish you were dead and then the father getting eaten. It, it, yeah. They have to be apart. Like you can't have them put yeah. together like that because then it becomes obvious that you're yeah. gonna you're gonna you're gonna close that loop later. And, mm -hmm. and it, it's yeah. obvious that they were like that was like the purpose of the script. And you know that you know it's like the, you just know that it's gonna happen. Um, yeah, it could have just it could have been done way more deftly in my in my mind. Well, and um, I think they didn't have to make him that upset about it. Like he could be like, it's weird. Like he was a real jerk to me and my mom but like, I didn't want him to die. Like that could be the thing. Mm -hmm. And um, instead he seems genuinely like sick about it, which I mean, I'm not saying that's not realistic maybe, but what I'm saying is, is that it doesn't make sense with what we've seen because the mom at the end, she's like, my husband, she goes to all the survivors, like my husband uh, owes you a lot of money. My son told me about all this. And you're like, and she's not even like upset at all. I'm assuming because yeah, they really right. want it to be a sad ending. But like her husband just got eaten by fur balls, like literally eaten. Like his corpse is missing an abdomen upstairs, and yeah. mm -hmm. and she's totally fine. Everything's fine. So it would have made sense if he was a jerk all around, and then DiCaprio's character would have been just like, like, yeah, but you loved your mom. I just I didn't want him to die. Like that would have made more sense and could have been clearer. Plus the way the scene is shot, it's actually mm -hmm. beautiful, but it's forced because we're actually looking at DiCaprio's character through like two slats in the wall. And he turns around when he's talking to her towards the slats and leans against the slats in like a very stage sort of um, theatrical way, which didn't, I mean, as Jeff, you said, there's some great shots and great ideas and great camera work in this movie. But in this mm -hmm. case, it was more than the job required. And so it stood out a little bit. And I think it forced some, some weird delivery uh, yeah. or stilted delivery. Um, let's, we've talked a little bit about, um, about uh, Charlie's character played by Don Keith Opper, who sort of owns the Critters, uh, the Critters movies um, by virtue of that's every Critters fan knows him because he's the one that starts from episode one. He sees the Crittership land in the very first one all the way through uh, Critters four. And uh, let's listen to this. In the beginning, he's the one that tells the kids there's bad stuff out there. They just want to eat um, when they're at the rest area. And he also has a comic entry, like a super ridiculous entry. Like they go to get a Frisbee that has landed again in the woods and they're all there, all the kids. And then Charlie's character launches out of like a, a debris strewn foxhole into the air with smoke. And I don't know how he was going to catch critters that way, I'm not sure if he was planning on landing on them, um, but it was redonkulous. Uh, and, and this is, but then he gets some good, some good dialogue in, and this is, this is one of his little bits when he's talking to DiCaprio's character who is being his signature uh, jackass. You think this is some kind of joke? 
You think this is some kind of game? All they do is eat. You got to keep a weather eye out all the time. You don't want to. Every minute. Wait! <laughs> Better too late. Yeah, so he actually, I think he's a fantastic actor. He plays this character that as through the series becomes progressively more goofy. Like he's basically the town dork uh, who just rides his bike and drinks. And then he meets these uh, Ugg, who is this intergalactic bounty hunter looking for the critters and sort of becomes his apprentice. And they have this great friendship between them, which held the first two movies together. Um, and then in this one, he shows up there in the beginning to give the exposition and then at the end to sort of save the day. Um, and he's done a lot of bit parts. Um, and so he's very, he's very recognizable. He has a gap tooth and sort of, he, he plays a lot of those, you know, the yokel character. Um, but he does a good job. And this film sort of marks the end of his, his, his successful run in this series, because in the next film, which we actually get a very long setup slash teaser for in the credits for this one, um, uh, they, they, they make a big 180. It takes place in space and they make a big 180 on a character from the first, from, uh, from the first two that people did not like. Um, and it's, it sort of really damaged that whole friendship thing. And, and it, it was funny to me that a film, if you were to describe, it's about, you know, little alien fur babies that roll around and eat things, that it would sort of, the success of the series would hinge on this strange friendship between an alien and a dork. And, uh, and this is the last one where we actually got to keep that character, those characters intact, even though Ugg is not really in this film, he's in one little piece. Um, and so I think fans remember this one fondly uh, mm. before the next one sort of blew that up. I was about to say, like, this movie made me want to see the other, t other like, the two previous and yeah. the next film. Yep. Um, just, you know, not that, not, like, this isn't my genre. Like, I don't get that excited about this type of film. I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to grow a love for Critters. But I do, like, I would, I'm interested in seeing more of it. Um, well, I think, I think what you're pointing at is I found this movie fun. Yeah, like it's just it's it's not it's not heavy, you know. Um, like you said, the people that I love don't die. I um, mean, even if they did die, it probably wouldn't be done in such a way to make me ball my eyes out. Um, it's sort of a this is goofy, and the villains are likable. They laugh all the time. They have a very Gremlins esque scene, which they usually have in these movies, um, where all the critters except for like one who's terrorizing the group um, are in the kitchen of some of one of the apartments, and. You know, they, it's it's so dorky. One eats a huge thing of chili and has gas. Another yeah, one like eats gas, a, fast, fast, fast gas, fast gas. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, they got to metabolize fast, man. They lay eggs like nobody's business, right? That's true. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, and then there's uh, like the the dish soap bubbles, which I absolutely loved. I was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was so good. Which then <laughs> tied back to my favorite part of the cleaver, because that's how you do yeah. that. That one was uh, the one that got the cleaver business, because then bubbles started like floating out of it everywhere yeah yeah um yeah it was and i and you know and then flower thrown everywhere and then the fact that they're all happy that's i think what the biggest thing about critters that was successful in the design they can't grimace they're all mm -hmm. mouth so they are yeah. always smiling and they are always let's listen to this one this is from the beginning they've just killed their first victim in this movie which was um uh frank the maintenance the dirty maintenance guy and uh and and the evil stepfather calls him up 
to try and see where he's at with getting everyone to, to move on their own accord. And this is what happens. He calls on the phone, and of course the guy's dead. just how close your termination is. Okay, it's your funeral, wise ass. I'm coming over there and taking care of things myself. Yeah, so, and of course, at the end, the critter is eating the phone. So it's like, and they did this other thing too, like you heard all the little gurgles and grumbles, which is how they, they speak. But one thing I liked that they did over Gremlin is they're like, screw it. They're not just going to make sounds. They're speaking a language to each other, which they decide to subtitle occasionally for the, yeah. for the choice oh, of a joke or a pun. <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed that as well. And there's a great scene. It's used to the best effect, I think, in Critters 2. So that's that's worth a watch just to see mm, the, best, okay. the best subtitled joke of, of Critters Alien Speak. Um, and and the other the voice we heard there is William Dennis Hunt, another well known actor. Um, interestingly enough, his most well known films are um, the uh, the in the Flesh Gordon films, which are the uh, skin flicks modeled around Flash Gordon, which are quite fun and bizarre. Uh, he's in both of them. So, but he's been in a, a lot of stuff. Uh, I think he did an episode of Alias and uh, Frasier and Sabrina the Teenage Witch with Melissa Joan Hart. He's been all over the place. Um, and you can tell because he's got that great voice. So I think ultimately what it comes down to with this movie is it's not heavy. It's got a little bit of gore, some great monster effects, and a strong cast delivering a serviceable script that mm -hmm. doesn't surprise you in any way necessarily, except with maybe a couple of little t twists, like in like the lady falling and being and trying to hang from the building while swinging towards the payphone. Like I didn't expect that, but it's not shocking. Um, the end isn't shocking. The effects are pretty good. The sets are pretty good. And then you get a nice setup for the fourth movie if you're interested in that. Uh, so I think that's really all there is to it. It's not a complicated movie, but I do think, especially for being the third in a series, I, I think a lot of people probably passed this over in the rental aisles uh, in the 90s and didn't give it a chance when they probably would have really enjoyed it. Yeah. So it's time for our closing thoughts. Critters 3, they are, uh, excuse me, the tagline, which is continuing from the others, other films, is you are what they eat. That is the Critters tagline. Mm. Uh, Mandy, what uh, is your take on this film as to who you would recommend watch it? Oh, wow. Um, I guess from my own perspective, if you've not watched these types of movies before and now you'd like to revisit a piece of your youth that you never lived. I guess you can revisit it then. If you would like to have the experience for the first time of being a teenager in the 90s, watch this movie. It's quite pleasant and funny. Hijinks and, uh, and all. It's all good. Hmm. Excellent. Jeff, who would you recommend um, this movie to? I'd say like if I were just like pick one person, it'd be like a starter horror film for like, you know, 
I, I don't know what age group you pick the number you're the parent but you know i mean if you want to introduce your kid to like kind of the horror genre this is a i think a nice light way to do so um you know it's 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 not it's not like scary if there's not a lot of gore um it's it's uh you know if if your kid gets into this and really likes it maybe you know you can you know escalate it or whatever but uh you know, if they're, they're totally like traumatized by this, don't, don't, you know, don't show them the exorcist or, you know, or these other films, right. uh, probably, probably not going to, uh, not going to go over well. This movie probably won't traumatize them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess that, that'd be the target. It's also just fun. Like if you're an adult and you want to go back and just experience some kind of kooky 80s stuff. Uh, I, I agree. I think, um, and I, I would add to that, uh, first everyone's sort of, uh, pick up on this, that, it sort of feels like a family movie, like a kid's movie in some ways. Um, uh, Shudder, the streaming horror channel, actually I believe has the rights to this currently. Um, and they've produced the, the, a couple of the lot, the, I think the last two movies um, that have been direct to video. And actually they have a Critters TV series and it is their kid show. And it's, mm. it's sort of like, you know, like Stranger Things light, if you can call it that, but with Critters. So uh, I, think, I think they hit the nail on the head. And I think Critters 3 with the two, you know, leads being uh, being Leonardo DiCaprio and Amy Brooks, um, young characters. I think that that's probably where this really started. That idea that oh, this is these this would appeal to these kids. And also, Pat Oswalt said this one time in a, in a bit. He talked about how his he thought his daughter would be scared when she actually saw part of the um, uh, Benicio del Toro uh, werewolf reboot. And um, and later on, she's like laughing. He's like, "What's funny, sweetheart?" And she's like, "Doggy wearing a shirt." You know what I mean? Like. I think kids will find the critters kind of cute. They're scary, but they're cute. And they're also kind of funny. So even when they eat people, you're kind of like, meh. Like it's, it's, people would have one as a pet. Some exotic idiot would have it on a pet and they would make, you know, Tiger King 2, the critters era, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that that's, those are all good recommendations. And I would recommend this just for horror buffs who haven't seen the critters movies or who haven't seen them in a while, watch the original three and then you'll love it and you'll watch four and you'll be disappointed, but you're still going to watch four because it, you have to finish that original, uh, original series. So, and, and even if you don't like four, uh, Brad Dorif's in it. Okay. Brad Dorif's in it. I was about to say, I looked it up. Yeah. Yeah. I was like... He's in it. He's fantastic. I will see anything he's in. Um, uh, and we need more movies with him so we can we can put the you know hashtag Brad Dorf so that he comes and like likes our. Uh... I'm gonna get it tat. I'm gonna Tupac and I'm gonna get it tattooed on my chest. You know, Dorf <laughs> for life. Uh, all right, so that is Critters Three. Uh, I uh, enjoyable film. This next one, um, which which I think of all three of us, I think Mandy, you were the only one that had seen this before. Um, I may have seen it. If, seen if it, she was watching it all the time, I feel like I had to have been in the room at one point. I feel like but I have some pretty clear memories of this movie. Mm -hmm. Jeff must have seen it, but he's just probably too young to really remember. I don't recall it, to be honest. It seems kind of like, just from looking at reviews and what other people thought at the time, it feels like this is the kind of movie that maybe instead of Hoosiers or something, they showed on. In, in classrooms a lot like when it's movie day like these next two days we'll watch um you know uh batteries not included um i don't know if that's true or not oh no, I, no no we definitely had a bootleg copy of this from the <laughs> video store <laughs> we don't want the fbi knocking on our door Jeez. right the corpse of whoever owned video update is going to roll out of their grave <laughs> like what um you know how much yeah. rent it 
revenue we lost because you kids were watching the same 450 yeah. at home yeah um i i think uh this is this is a movie that when i want like when i was halfway through it I was like, how could I have not known about this movie? Because it really, it has all the, the earmarks of, a, or all the hallmarks of a um, beloved family movie from the 80s. And it is produced by Steven Spielberg. So it has some, some financial clout behind it. Uh, and the effects for the time are actually quite good. So a lot mm -hmm. of them I felt still hold up um, because it's all practical effects. Some of the green screening has the same problems with a lot of green screening, which is... Um, the color, which really means the lighting is off a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. It's the only thing that really separates it. But again, we mentioned uh, Mick Garris having directed Critters 2, and he actually uh, crafted the story for Batteries Not Included. He didn't, he didn't write the screenplay, um, but he crafted the stories. Uh, there were four writers, uh, S.S. Wilson, Brent Maddock, uh, Matthew Robbins, and then uh, Brett Bird actually um, Hmm. Co wrote this, who is uh, people may recognize as one of the head writers and creators at Pixar. He wrote The Incredibles, yeah. Ratatouille, Incredibles yeah. 2. He also wrote The Iron Giant. So there's a reason why this film um, has a really great story at its heart and really well developed characters. Um, the plot, just to get it out there, if you have not seen this movie or if you haven't seen it in many moons, is that uh, there's an apartment building that is going to be torn down by an evil landlord in this case he is actually trying to pay the money to leave but nobody wants to leave because they've been there forever or it's the perfect place for them or whatever even though it's a basically a construction war zone around them everything is completely gone um and the evil landlord has a uh it's not the handyman this time around it's just um a sort of a uh a goon in in 80s terminology the um, knock knock crew the knock knock crew. That's right. Um, he is uh, headed um, by, uh, by, uh, by Michael Carmine, who is a fantastic actor. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was interesting that that they chose to have. Um, uh, I, I think Carmine is maybe Puerto Rican. I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, uh, I could certainly look that up. But he's uh, he's one of the only ethnic people in the in the primary cast the other um being elizabeth pena who's also a fantastic actress uh and i'm and of course frank mccray plays harry the uh, large um black fix-it guy who is like the giant sweetheart ex-boxer mm -hmm. of the group um so there 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 is a multi-ethnic cast but i thought it was interesting that we had if it wasn't for um Elizabeth Pena, I was wondering how this film would feel in today's age having um, the primary bad guy through the movie be an, uh, someone who isn't white. Um, mm -hmm. And it's interesting, I wish we actually got, a, we get a lot of people's stories um, and we start to get his story a little bit. Like he's like, I didn't know my dad, right? Like that's one of the, mm -hmm. one of the things he said, one of the few things he says about himself. And you get this really cool dynamic that starts to build between him uh, and uh, Jessica Tandy's character, who, of course, at her advanced age, plays Faye Riley, um, who is the beloved resident um, of, the, of the complex, uh, who is 
in we don't know if it's de- i mean it's dementia it's, it is dementia they, they don't specifically say it's alzheimer's but it is it is it's, she is it's, going it's through dementia, dementia but there is definitely some weird component they tried to do where it's also she's also seems to be consciously trying to hide the fact that her son has died um and so she continually calls um carmine's character bobby her son and he's like i'm not your kid but at the same time he also kind of seems to like it like even when he's really a nasty character he never is really particularly mean to her uh, oh he's actually he, fairly sweet to her yeah, yeah and it's it's interesting and let's so basically the film opens, they're sweet to each other actually i think yeah even yeah. though everyone else of course hates him because he's trying to push them out of their home and he breaks their stuff and he's just a mean guy yeah. um and of course we need to mention that jessica tandy's character's husband who i would say is probably the lead if you had to pick one there's several leads mm-hmm. in this film um, but he plays frank riley and they're they're an old couple who owns uh the restaurant under in the bottom of this building or rather rents the restaurant the only restaurant in this building which um which mark michael carmine's character destroys in the beginning and uh, right before he destroys it he goes in to try and pay them all off um and the residents some of the residents are there uh and the people you hear talking is uh is the restaurant runner frank riley uh, jessica tandy's character faye riley his his wife who has dementia and michael carmine so here we go Bobby! Stop calling me that! Get her out of here. And you, stay away from my wife and stay away from this belt. You tell Lazy that his money stinks, you understand? You kill my head, man. Money's not a good reason to move, okay? Here's a good reason. That's right, Abuela. And the reason he says that's right, Abuela, which if anybody doesn't know Spanish, that means grandmother, um, is he's, he's like, if you need another reason, and he smashes the tabletop next to them with the plates on it with a baseball bat. And then they're all looking, and she smiles and smashes the teacup that's in her hand. <laughs> and because she's not all there, right, is the implication. And I, I liked that scene because it was a good, it was funny, but there's so much emotion packed into this opening, like as um Carmine's character goes through apartment to apartment trying to give these people money who don't want it and sort of abusing them as he does it to try and encourage them to leave it's actually uncomfortable right like I mean it's unlike Critters where I feel like you know I could say you could say as you did Jeff both of these movies are not really heavy like there was Mm -hmm. no I wasn't it's not Shadowlands I was not you know sobbing on the floor a wreck of a man but Mm -hmm. Um, this one has a lot of backstory for every character and it's all kind of sad for a lot of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And the idea is then that these aliens, uh, these mechanical robotic aliens come down and take residence in in this hotel building and they fix things as they go through their, their, their process, right? That's the plot of this, is this group of people is essentially saved, you know, their home is saved and their lives are sort of improved by the presence of these uh, space robotic space aliens that are like little flying saucers that actually give birth to several baby robots um, that become kind of a part of the whole group. So that's the overall plot of this. It's very similar in the setup to Critters 3. There's the bad landlord, the um, people don't want to move, and there's a bunch of people who are trying to stop it. The characters are the same, but um, fire. The, they both have a fire. That's right. Um, in, in this case, it's arson, right? Right. Um, 
I, I just, before I forget, Mark, Michael Kamen's actually in one a movie I absolutely love, which is a really bizarre action film called Band of the Hand from 1986. Uh, it's by Paul Michael Glazer, the director. Definitely check it out to see um, Carmine do some some great stuff, even though he tends to be cast as sort of the stereotypical, um, you know, oh, he's the token Hispanic guy who speaks with a Brooklyn Hispanic accent. Um, but he does a really great job and he totally deserves uh, a heap of credit, especially for this film, because I think his character showed a lot of range that's subtle rather than over the top. Uh, but anyway, uh, wait, when did you say that was? Because I thought he passed away in like the late 80s. 89, right. Yeah, it was three yeah. years before he died. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it, which which is sad because he was actually quite prolific. Um, he was up all the way until his, his the end of his life. Um, he was in Leviathan as well, uh, which is a great Aliens knockoff that takes place underwater. Um, if, if anyone is interested in it, how could you not be interested, especially since it stars Peter Weller, who is the one true RoboCop. Okay, so back to the point. Batteries not included. Um, Mandy, what did you think about this movie? I know you've seen it many times. Yeah, so it's funny, like I only actually remembered a couple of the scenes um, from childhood, but uh, um, being like that emo, like <laughs> older person born in a young body kind of thing, like the parts that I remember, <laughs> the interactions with like the artist and the pregnant woman, how yeah. she really, just really like, felt his art um, <laughs> um that's what i remember and i remembered the um the boxer like repairing the um the tile work in the entryway and i was pretty jazzed to see those again um i really liked um as an adult like putting together more of maybe the metaphor of the movie where there's these mm. that come in that fix physical things but through fixing those physical things they help to bring the characters through resolution of their emotional brokenness um as well so it was like well it was pretty good yeah there's a lot of emotional sort of stuff in here um and the the pregnant woman you're talking about is played by elizabeth pina who weirdly enough she also died relatively young she died at 55 in 2014 and she was acting um all the way up uh, until she passed away and still has movie posthumous movie release uh, movies released. I think the last one was like 2018 or something. Um, she Brad Bird brought her in as a side character. She was Mirage and The Incredibles and things like that. So uh, now I'm wondering if this movie's cursed. Okay, we're gonna come back. Oh to no! <laughs> but uh, but I yeah, also no. really enjoyed. Yeah, just I also really enjoyed the visual of um, the same one that they use in Up at the end of Up with the small apartment building surrounded by the huge development. Yep. Yeah, and and again, it's, yeah. it's Brad Bird, so it's hard to imagine that that wasn't in their mind as they were doing it. Mm -hmm. um, also, another interesting fact about this movie, when you watch it, there's a lot of um, older people. Like, this movie is one where, and actually Critters too, to an extent, some of the main characters are older. In this case, the main characters are uh, not just adults or mature, but they're elderly. Um, and they did a great job with it. And that's partially, I would credit it with... Um, the fact that the casting director for this film is uh, an incredibly prolific casting director who also cast other films that starred uh, older actors and actresses like uh, uh, Cocoon. So, um, and it's Penny Perry who did the casting. And I mean, her her resume is pages and it is every every single thing you could think of, uh, of some genre she's, she's done from tiny TV movies to large-scale productions like this one uh, she's she's done it so um, 
kudos kudos on that because it was a really good um a really good casting job and for those of you who think oh well she probably cast lots of kids movies she did she also was the casting director uncredited for i spit on your grave the 2010 remake uh, of that that video nasty so she's done everything uh, and i think she did a really good job with every single person in this movie um the character the other character you're talking about because um, two of the characters in the apartment complex is an artist who's kind of tied like he feels his his girlfriend leaves him at the very beginning because um of carmine's character's skeezy um skeezy actions towards her uh he is um so he's single and he's angry and he hurls his paintings out the window and um elizabeth pina's character sees them and we don't see her do it until we don't realize she's done it necessarily until later on but you kind of assume she goes and collects the paintings and puts them in her apartment and it's clear that she has a crush on him she's pregnant and her uh boyfriend the the baby daddy presumably is um a musician a traveling musician so she's not there and carmine's like he's never coming back and we kind of assume that and then he actually comes back at one point um but she clearly has a crush on on the artist right and um uh, the artist, Mason, played by Dennis, and I always, I, I've seen his name before, and I always think I will never say this right. It's Bautzakaris, I think is how you say it. Um, but he's he's also been in a lot of stuff. He's still acting, uh, so I guess the curse isn't isn't uh, fully. He's uh, been in Better Call Saul. Um, he it wasn't Brady. until now. Wasn't he said fully, fully oh, real. Right. Well, <laughs> thanks for bringing that up, because now, totally cursed. Yes, yes, exactly. Totally true. Uh, at least, hey, it, it's the cast. It's not us. Um, but it, this is the one thing I'll say about Dennis, Dennis's character in this movie. Uh, fantastic, lush hair. Like, his hair, he has a full beard, but then his hair is like 80s perfect. Uh, it, and if this is an 87 movie, so it's just like he could have stepped onto the set of any single, like, um, family ties, growing pains, like any tv sitcom and been the dad or the successful older brother and no one they would just assumed he's supposed to be on set uh because his hair is fantastic this is this yeah, is he's pretty peak he was pretty peak 80s. the the wardrobes in both of these movies were delightful as <laughs> far yeah. as like at 80s early 90s time capsule like yes. think that i knew people who owned all of the clothes in these movies <laughs> Um, and I, I want to say that too. So she's, she's loving it. He's kind of a jerk. Like he's not a terrible person, but he's not like, he's everyone, blind. He, he yeah. doesn't, he doesn't see the things in front of him. I, I wouldn't say he's a jerk. He's just, he's, I don't know what the word is, but it's, he's, um, well, I was on her he's side. not paying attention. She, they get really close. Right. And you assume that yeah. they're going to be a couple or a very, or very much a couple. Um, and then he has this line. So what's happened is um, the, the aliens, one in particular, the little silver one uh, with the blue eyes is who we kind of take to be the female in our minds, I guess. Um, she's been trying to suck a lot of power from other outlets. And so they've, and they have this little shack where they've been throwing stuff and collecting things from people's apartments on the roof, this old um, pigeon den. And so uh, they string power up there and she ends up powering up and giving birth, right? To three little critters one of whom at first seems to be dead which is really tragic and as a kid i would have been devastated but we're going to come back to that um this is uh this is after the alien has given essentially stillbirth and right now um jessica tandy's uh, dementia character is burying it in a planter 
and everyone's kind of gathered around. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Faith, this has gone far enough, come on, get up. God accepted, Frank, it's over. Poor little soul. What soul, what soul? Mrs. Riley, Mrs. Riley, Mrs. Riley, it's a chunk of metal. It's nine ounces of canned goods, most of it from your apartment. Now we can really look inside. Wait a minute. Last night you were so excited. Now there are chunks of metal. You don't go out and bury the most advanced, self-perpetuating, machine-tooled, flying clockwork known to man. Mrs. Riley, please! You know, that little, tiny, helpless, spare part, it got born and it never had a chance. It could happen to anyone. What's the matter with you? Okay, so I feel like this is a really packed like this scene is packed with meaning here right <clears throat> so first we have the fact that he's being callous right he's not i mean this, it's dead right we would we would dissect a dead animal that we'd never seen before before we get into deep on this i want to ask you guys because i would have defended that burial site with my life because i cannot separate emotion from tiny things and but you both are engineers what was your take on that moment because he brings up this sort of like potentially scientific high-minded idea you can't bury it we have to understand it all right so here's the thing one of the big themes throughout this film is miracles and so uh i think they were playing on the fact that life is like a miracle and so um this this little creature is you know uh, should have been you know just one of the other miracles that came about and the fact that it's not is like a really sad thing right um, and he sees it as, you know, just an object that could be, um, kind of, you know, fiddled with and learned from. Um, I think, I mean, I think it's just two different viewpoints. I, I mean, I don't, I, I think that, uh, I think that he was incorrect in, in, in very clearly these were, uh, you know, sentient beings with, you know, emotions and, uh, you know, it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just a machine, right. At this point, um, but I, I think that's where he was coming from. Um, Let's ask the only one who has children on yes. this podcast, Mandy. What's your take on it? Oh, uh, I, it's funny that I don't remember being emotionally crushed by that moment in the movie, but I remember like the other parts of like the humans connecting to each other. Um, I also think like it's very um, ambitious and kind of, egotistical of him to believe that he or anybody else could understand the alien technology that must be he's present in something like that. He's, he's a painter and not a great right? one, like, if I can say that as someone who went to art school. I, I just, I'm so, feeling yeah. A, a little, yeah, I'm feeling like a little um, triggered as an engineer with some someone from marketing coming in and saying like, well, can't you just make it work? Like, right. you're the engineer. Like, right open it up and like everything like, will like be I'm fine doing and to you right like, now <laughs> like I'm doing right now like, like, hey mom tell us how this happened yeah um. <laughs> I, you know, so, I think it was just um it was pretty uh I don't know uh, arrogant even of him just be like oh clearly we'll just take the lid off and we'll figure out how these alien species can turn your canned goods from your apartment into a living, adorable, tiny little baby alien. 
<laughs> and here's, um, here's here's the thing that's amazing about this too like another aspect is that when it's when it's born and it's clearly not alive um because yeah. there's no lights henry uh, excuse me harry who is um the the big softy um maintenance man uh played by frank mccray um his character we know he used to be a boxer but he looks like he wouldn't hurt a fly right um he's very sweet he doesn't stand up for himself when uh carmine comes and 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 picks a fight with him and roughs him up kind of um he he when he first sees it the first time he ever speaks on camera because they say he never really talks he says batteries not included when he sees it which yeah. by the way was a weird ass thing to say because it's almost like a joke at a funeral <laughs> but he, because we kind of got to see his character it didn't i didn't think it felt like that because mm -hmm. he seems like he's for how we would say it in the olden times simple right you don't know if he's mm -hmm. been hit a lot or what might what the case might be um but he ends up stealing this thing from the dirt while they're all like what are you doing and lock himself up and of course because he gets it right it doesn't have power the whole thing has been powered yeah. like batteries not included and granted it's by accident but he does give it life and it becomes sort of somewhat attached to him and he's attached to it so that's an adorable twist and side thing um but what i found really interesting in this scene that it's not fully explored but i do think it's very present is um the the racial and um socioeconomic divide because we look at mason's character the painter when he says that and uh he's like he's got this big apartment this big lofted apartment and even though it's kind of a dumb mm -hmm. movie, right? It's this big lofted apartment and he's a painter and he doesn't even seem like he's really sold anything. It sounds like he's not that high up on the chain yet. And, we're, and then we have um, uh, Elizabeth Pena's character, uh, Marissa, who's pregnant. Her boyfriend may or may not be coming back and mm -hmm. she's Hispanic and living mm -hmm. in, we only see a really cramped apartment for her. It, we only see one room and a, and a kitchenette off of it. And we assume mm -hmm. maybe there's a bedroom. Like all of his paintings only fit, they take up her entire living room, right? Yeah. So we see that. And her response to him, it's like, this thing just got born, didn't even have a chance. It could have happened to any of us. Like that was this big moment, right? Where it's like his privilege is showing hardcore. And, and he's asked other things too, like, um, you know, what, what do you mean? Haven't you gone to the doctor for the baby? And she's like, I, I can't mm -hmm. afford the doctor. Which by the right. way, what man that is a good man with white privilege would not have instantly said, well, I'll take you to the clinic. Like that's just, that was right. what I expected to happen in some sense. But like, I'll so that take was, care of you. Yeah. It was but a really interesting. That moment. hit me hard as someone who has gone through a pregnancy and like, you do have those worries, even if you've been to the doctor, mm -hmm. like anything could happen. Like there's, it's one of the great mysteries that's still left to humanity is like really there's so many things that they can do to help you understand and to really like to try and know what's what you expect and like you just can't until it happens um and so like that like i was like oh she's just worried about her baby like so much like she's mm -hmm. so about her baby and her future that i mean having aliens show up is like pretty big but also like she's just identifying so much yeah. that little alien mother she's was, feeling deep empathy and his yeah. character is feeling zero. It's like no. right. one's at a hundred, one's at zero. And that, that's kind of why I said it's two different perspectives. It's yep. it really is. He's just blind. He just can't see it. Yeah, the right perspective and the wrong one. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sure. Fine. <laughs> just go We're not going to open that can of worms. Yeah, 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 You're going to die yeah, on Jeff. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I thought that that was one of the strongest scenes. Um, and 
so as it goes, it kind of plays out then how we expect it to, I think in some ways, right? Like the aliens, um, the babies start helping out at the restaurant clandestinely and we get some comedic roles in there. We have this scene in the restaurant um, after they're, they're working in the kitchen when um, uh, Carmine's character comes in and he kind of almost gets into a fight with one of the construction workers who's really warmed to this restaurant and everyone's eating there, right? Like everything is going mm-hmm. amazing all of a sudden. And like the people that are supposed to be tearing it down are patroning the restaurant and loving it. Um, mm-hmm. But he sits down and it looks like they're going to kick him out of the restaurant. And then um, Jessica Tandy's character, you know, has been treating him kind of like a son comes in and is like, sit down, get some food and gives him soup. And he's like, you really want to feed me? And she's like, of course, you have to eat. And he's like, well, I'm going to go. He's like, well, you have to eat first. And he starts to mm-hmm. really like have this sort of moment with her. Um, and then he sees the alien or sees something that could be the alien in the background. And he's like, you're, I, you're not fooling me. You're not crazy. And like, which is sort of an interesting take on him because we see him more and more every time he shows up now where it's like, oh, everything is against him. Which sort of plays into that whole idea again, which like there are the haves and the have nots. And it's another form of like the, the pregnant single mom, you know, like he's this driftless person. His gang has left him because he told them that they had weird, crazy aliens or, or ghosts. I think he's spirits. Um, they, they mess with him and leave him. So it's just him. He's now all alone for real. And we start to see this and then it backslides. And it's, it's kind of, it's not enough to be heartbreaking, but it did, I, fe- I felt it in the feels, right? Mm-hmm. Like it does, it hits you. Um, and it gets just more and more so because then we get to the big finale where the, the babies have fled and, and they basically run off and they're trying to find him. The humans go out to find him. And, um, and uh, Carmine, who's now been essentially fired as the, the, the tough guy for this rich, you know, landowner, um, is uh, he goes to try and kick them out for the last time because that guy can do this. And the guy sent someone else to burn the place down. And so he's got this elaborate setup. It must be a real kind of setup because it's so bizarre like there's like chemicals. Balloons yeah, they're gonna yeah. ignite. Yeah, he like shows up with his arson kit, like a doctor. Yeah, and it's like, and his it's a bag all, of like arson materials. And, right, and they're all like yeah. home goods, so it would probably mm-hmm. look like it. So yeah, you don't like leave a bomb canister. You're, you're leaving balloons, and I think he his fuse was like in a like milk carton. Yeah, essentially, so, yeah. And, and so it's it's so essentially he gets there and he's like the place is empty or whatever you know and he's like fine we'll do it the right way and Carmine kind of goes crazy and he kicks like the gas line out and he's like what are you doing like clearly you don't need to do this and it's going to look sketchy but he's like I don't care I got this it's, I'm going to do it um, and then he's essentially harassing the guy that took his job his terrible job and then Jessica Tandy leans out the window upstairs and he realizes he's still in the building and he flips out on the guy and he's like, you got to undo it. And he starts beating the crap out of him, which is a great scene because you get this, you finally get this confirmation that he's not a monster. He may be a bad person, but he doesn't want to kill or hurt someone, right? Mm. Like there's this, at least not her, like there's some sort of softness in this person that we know has been there, but now we get to see it. And I like the fact that he's using it in a brutality form by beating the crap out of this guy who of course, is a professional con man, essentially, right? So he's like, my leg, it broke my ankle, I can't go. And he tells him where it is. And then, of course, his ankle's not broken, and he drives away, right? But mm-hmm. Carmine's character goes in to then save Jessica Tandy. And it's this whole thing when she realizes, because he's nice to his dad when he tries to pretend to be her son, he's like, dad's great. He's telling out in the car, like, let's go, trying to get her to leave. And she's like, you're not my son, which is a 
a heartbreaking moment because it's when she finally confronts that her son is dead, right? Which is a weird thing. I think it's sort of, this is the movie magic moment because I don't think dementia is going to work like that um, in well, some way. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's not really the It makes you, yeah. it does make you wonder though, like how much is dementia and how much is just such a deep-seated denial that she's created. Mm-hmm. Like it's clearly more than that at play. Um, but again, we get this nice, we get this nice moment where he he's like, screw it, you're 10 pounds, I'm gonna carry you out. Like, this is how it's gonna happen. Um, I don't know what you guys thought about the fact that really he doesn't get, we kind of, at least I did kind of as like a sappy American audience mm-hmm. watching what feels like a sappy American film in many ways. I was really hoping, you know, you kind of expected that thing at the end where it's like, they kind of adopt him and he's like working at the restaurant or something. And we don't get that. Instead, he shows up at the hospital because he has burned hands, right? From so he, like, they, edge, they edge towards it. They kind of yeah. give you that hope that it's going to happen. And then it's a little more realistic than that, huh? Because yeah. they kind and of, because, yeah. It gets taken away. Yeah, he shows up with flowers um, to her room, uh, Tandy's room, and her husband sees it and he's like, he's trying to make her feel better. And he's like, oh, mm-hmm. I don't like this guy, but I can play this to help her. And he's like, look, Bobby's home. And, she see, and he's mm-hmm. got flowers and she sees him. And she just starts bawling. And you know that the mm-hmm. illusion has been broken, right? Yeah. Presumably for good, if it could work like that. And, um, and then Carmine's character, he just leaves and you just see him throwing the flowers in the trash. Um, mm-hmm. And we see him one more time because at the end, the aliens show up en masse in the middle of the night. Harry's the only one there with this new dog companion, which I thought was a cute trick because they're like, we can't leave him with no one if the aliens leave. He's got his own <laughs> So he has a dog now. Um, yeah, yeah, but they're yeah. sitting in the front of this demolished building and all these aliens show up and they rebuild the place from top to bottom overnight. Okay. So, and that's of course when the legalese permits expire. So they can't do anything about it now. So now it has to stay nice little you know a uh, uh, hand of god moment but there was also like the woman showed up that was in the restoration so like now she's gonna work to protect sure. it or whatever and so everyone's yeah. in the crowd basically she's yeah. there because it looks beautiful because her thing is like i can't make this historical building it's a dump which i'm pretty sure yeah. most historical buildings are dumps but it's true they don't have a lot of money so there you go mm-hmm. um but and then and and carmine's character is in the audience so you, you get a little bit of hope but i thought it was interesting that they didn't choose to go that far um mm. Because I don't know that I would have faulted them for it, but it isn't very realistic. Like, this is probably more realistic. Um, yeah. And it is, it's just sad that he doesn't get that recognition that, hey, I did a nice thing. I was going to do a bad thing, Yeah. but I, I, I stopped a worse thing. Which they is didn't kind of finish his redemption. Like, he sure. kind of had a redemption. They didn't finish the redemption, um, which, I mean, I think is fine. Um, you know, maybe he didn't really deserve a full redemption. <laughs> which is a possibility. I mean, it's true. Yeah. He's kind of been a terrible person. Um, the other thing, so let's, we've talked about a lot of the aspects of the movie and I think it's a, I think it's actually a very sweet, heartwarming movie. Um, there's a lot of great stop motion and animatronic effects, probably some puppetry effects, I'm sure, um, in here. The design of the characters is great. The casting is great. The sets are great. Everything, it looks like a Spielberg movie. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, yet there, there is a problem, I think, which is in the pacing. Uh, and it's not. No, that's not fair. Not the pacing. The actual plot has so many elements and side stories and back bits and moments that um, it's long. This is, feels like a long film to me. Um, yeah. I, I think it's almost two hours. It's not quite, but it's almost there. Uh, it's an hour and 47 or so. 
It also doesn't lean enough into the cutesy little aliens. Because like, they're really incidental to the story. Right. Uh, it's, not, it's not really about them, even though you right. look at this, this lovely poster, wherever it is over yeah. here. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it very much has in the frame. It's not about them. It actually is more about the building behind them. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, the people that live there, obviously. Like the character drama that's going on yeah. with well, everyone. And we, have, we haven't, yeah. sorry, Mandy. I actually was going to ask you a little bit about the pacing. So, like, I got to, like, 30 minutes to the end of the movie. I'm like, whoa, how is this another 30 minutes? But then, you know, whatever. But um, at the, more at the beginning, the pacing and the style of acting, um, and the, I don't know if it had to do with the age of the actors or a choice of the director, but it felt very like a play, theatrical. Yes, very much like a stage. Honestly, like I was on a stage in a theater, and that is how the roles were being played. Mm -hmm. The way you would see it live, um, and there are certain mannerisms and um, tones of voice and like yeah. pacing of um, the way things are spoken that kind of go with that versus going with a movie. And I was wondering, like, what. Like if you noticed that as well, I did. Um, in fact, the first the first real chunk of dialogue we get it's a monologue by Jessica mm -hmm. Tandy. She's going on this this speech about how things should be and how they are, and she's of course in dementia. And she's like, I had to do the shopping. Of course, she doesn't have any groceries. Like it's it's a monologue, and there's a couple of moments, and I felt like it dropped off a little bit as it went on and became when the aliens arrived is a little less, but. There's even the even the framing of the shots felt, mm. you know, as you said. Um, and we talked about this with some of the scenes that were really overt in uh, Ernie Reyes Jr.'s um, Ultimate Fight or The Process, which is things are staged on a linear path in front of us. And we see it that way. Um, mm -hmm. I was getting a Steel Magnolias vibe when I was watching it because, um, you know, that's a stage play that's been turned into a film which felt very much like a stage play when it was filmed. So mm -hmm. I, I did get that. And I, I looked to see if maybe there was some sort of stage background um, of the author and I didn't didn't necessarily find any but that's harder to track down than mm -hmm. film records and so but definitely that is absolutely what I got in the beginning okay yeah and it was definitely a beginning thing versus like a throughout the whole movie mm -hmm. well and they're talking at the audience even though they're in conversations with themselves right mm -hmm. they're talking they're basically saying things for our benefit it's not necessarily exposition but they're saying mm -hmm. things to develop characters that um, they're not responding to each other and that's a yeah. very, f f you know, stage play device to kind mm -hmm. of get stuff out there. Well, yeah, it definitely was like in the beginning you have, like you said, there's a monologue and then, you know, the, um, the knock, knock boys, that was almost a monologue. They weren't looking for mm -hmm. responses. They were just roaming around like, you know, doing their, you know, stage show. There was literally was a stage show yes. they were doing for the people in the, in the building. So I, I can, I can see why you, uh, why you kind of took it that way. Yeah. You can feel that. Yeah, and so we just had a short break, and uh, my wife criticized my my uh, handling of of the talk about dementia. And I want to clarify, absolutely, you know, I'm not an expert by any means. Have known people and family members who have dementia um, of various kinds, but it is one of those cases where, of course, they can forget who people are or confuse people. That seems very understandable in that situation, and that's how it felt in the beginning. My slight criticism was that for the sake of plot and resolution, they seem to imply that once she accepted that Carmen's character was not her son, Bobby, uh, 
then she now knows that her son is dead. And I don't think that it seems unlikely to me that there would be some sort of long-term change in her if dementia was at the root of that problem, right? Like it just seems, and again, maybe it, the brain's complicated and so is dementia. So that, that could be the case. Or it could just be that she still, she was still in that lucid moment when she remembered that he was gone. Um, but I don't think that's how they wanted us to feel. I think they wanted us to feel like it was more of a change in her. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think that there's also some uh, foreshadowing to that or like just like little breadcrumbs throughout the film between her and her husband. Mm -hmm. um, even in the clip that you played where she's burying the little baby mm -hmm. and um, she's like, they're talking about a death and like the relate, like the way that they talk is almost like a reading between the lines like they're having a conversation about their son like mm -hmm. she's saying like it's done and like i don't know i'm sorry it she was on specific, but it just it felt yeah. like foreshadowing mm -hmm. or like that there was something that was a long drawn out struggle between the two parents in acknowledging the death of their their own child um that kind of sets it up for later or sets it up that it's more than just her forgetting because of yeah. um, like a dementia. I think you're right. And I think that that is a really interesting moment there because she is the one that says it's done, just accept mm -hmm. it, which is funny because then you sort of feel like, wait, by his not acknowledging the fact that Bobby's dead, is that helping her act as though he isn't? right? Mm. Which is sort of a self-sacrificial martyr thing, right? Because when she talks about her son, she speaks as though it's the father's fault for the son being gone. You drove him away. You were nice. And so if he were to say like, Bobby's dead, he died in a car accident, you know, which certainly wasn't my making, you know, um, that, that could sort of end that and, and sort of relieve him of some guilt of that. But it's almost like he wants the guilt, right? Because he does clearly miss his son and feel bad and feel bad for his wife who, I mean, she has to have dementia, right? In addition. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that that is an interesting subtext and it's all there and you feel it even if there's not a, a really tidy end to it. Um, just one more point on the dementia. I, I'm not, I think in general, they're not treating it hundred percent anyway. One, that's not the, what the movie is essentially. Um, mm -hmm. It's not, but also like, she's taking some sort of liquid medicine for it. That, that doesn't, I mean, there is no liquid medicine for it. And if there was, it certainly wouldn't taste like whatever nice thing she says it tastes like. So um, we don't really like, we don't know what that is. Um, that's in the beginning and it's not really addressed again, uh, but it is an interesting thing to see. Like they didn't go so far into her state that we would be able to have a lot of problems with it. They just went far mm -hmm. enough that it makes you wonder. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, she I was think, old. She did, just because she was taking medicine doesn't need, necessarily mean right. it was related to the correct that, dementia yeah. diagnosis. Yeah. Right. For a lot of things. But yeah, I thought, I thought the way that he handled it was, you know, very like Hollywood. Yes. Yeah. She, it was, it was story based. It was, yeah, story based, in, ambiguous, right? For plot reasons. Yeah. Um, and they left out all the inconvenient stuff. Um, that goes along with dementia, like cognitive decline. <laughs> it's yeah. um, less pleasant. Um, but I think that it, I think that it illustrated kind of the pain and complexity of still loving that person mm -hmm. 
and seeing how they lose and regain connection with their own memories mm. um, like day to day was it was a good illustration but definitely not the full truth yeah so i mean just a little a little background on on us uh, uh you know we we've had we've had dementia in our family um mm -hmm. we, we lost our our grandmother to alzheimer's um and you know it's it's pretty horrific it's definitely left a, a mark um you know, it's a hard I don't know thing. If anybody else has out there has has gone through something similar but it, it is you know it is a very sad and scary um, diagnosis and you know it doesn't it doesn't end quickly it it goes very very slowly and it's very bleak um, but yeah it, it really does you know some of the elements there did feel pretty uh like honest like the the idea of not recognizing a person um and calling them a different name and thinking they're a different person um i think more likely what happens is you just don't know who the person is um yeah. but it, I, I had been attributed to other uh like some of my uncles maybe um or um i have two similar yeah, yeah, yeah. not so, your uncles but yeah yeah so you know it, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't far off to like you know, to be, to be insulting or anything. Like it was definitely story driven. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was close enough to get the, the right feels in there um, mm -hmm. for, for, you know, that type of, um, you know, character that is going through dimension. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's, let's touch quick on um, the director of this film. So Matthew Robbins, uh, I'm pretty well versed, but when I saw Matthew Robbins name as a director of, of a Steven Spielberg production, I didn't really, I was like, I don't really know Matthew Robbins' work, as far as I know. Um, and and uh, he's actually more prolific as a writer. He directed a few things, um, but he's actually, he wrote, uh, he was worked with Spielberg on several things. Um, he did the original story sketch for uh, Electric Labyrinth THX 1134, the short, which inspired uh, Lucas's later film of it. Um, he also uh, did additional story writing on Close Encounters of the Third Time, uh, Third Kind, which I assume is where he uh, came into contact with Spielberg. Um, but he's actually uh, one of the main writing folks for Guillermo del Toro right now, uh, which is awesome. He wrote, uh, he worked on Mimic, uh, the Don't Be Afraid of the Dark um, 2010 remake that Guillermo del Toro did, uh, del Toro's 2015 Crimson Peak. Um, and he's actually also doing the script for uh, del Toro's 2021 who knows, maybe Miss Rowan will push that to 2022, but uh, update and disturbing version of Pinocchio, which I'm very excited for. So um, very prolific, very excellent writer um, making this uh, not directorial debut. It's actually right in the middle of his directing career. But I think that it's sort of, it sort of probably explains why so much attention is paid to the story over some of the other elements, even though it's beautiful to look at. Um, it is a long one and the, there's a lot more character work in here than might actually be necessary for the film. So I actually, I have a, I have a few theories as to why this didn't kind of knock it out of the park with audiences. And it isn't like today as like this beloved film from this time period. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple things. One um, I'm actually really glad I didn't speak first because uh, my sister mentioned Up and literally the beginning of this film is the exact same as the beginning of Up. Uh, mm -hmm. Up did it, you know, masterfully. This was, you know, kind of 
you know, the seed idea really, where you basically, the, the film opens up with a, what is essentially like an old timey slideshow of photos of Frank and Faye, uh, you know, meeting and, you know, getting married and uh, having a kid uh, and, um, uh, you know, basically opening this cafe, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And up, you have the meeting of two characters uh, they meet in this house and they refurbish this house and they go through this, the, you know, the, the, their, their life of, uh, trials and tribulations. And then it gets to the end. In both cases, the point is you feel sentimental about the building. And this is really important for the plot of the, the plot of both films. If you don't care about either of these buildings and don't think that they have some sort of sentimental value, the whole film doesn't work because in both cases you're just like just leave you know old folk just move out go someplace else right um it's just a building you know move on but by by bringing that kind of like that little um uh kind of sentimental element to the building like it has a history it has a story with it you get a little bit of that kind of sentiment and in up that's like all you needed it's a character all by itself Exactly. It becomes it becomes like a character that you love, like another one of the characters. And and if you look at the the poster, it shows it like as a character almost, right? Like it's this big, imposing thing. It's half of the screen. Um, I think Up did it better. Um, I think at the end of the the like the little short silent film in Up, like you're you're bawling your eyeballs out, and yes. like you love the character, and you're like, please let this house survive, like get out of here developers in, in this case it was a little brisk they, it was you know like maybe like a minute long slideshow of images with the, the opening credits um and then it opens up with a kind of the transition of the last photo into like kind of the real like you know the real life version of it um the more i think down yeah. yeah the rundown like kind of you know it, it it had like other buildings right next to it uh, but then it like they faded away and it was just this this rundown you know uh soon to be demolished building um and i think that i think that if they had just maybe done a little bit more in that that opening bit you would have run in there with the sentimental bits um, yeah i think they could have worked it in throughout a little bit too because i actually wasn't i knew you know the building is important because they tell you um, yeah and the like I didn't even quite understand the physical layout of who was on what floor. Like I would have had to written it down in order to understand mm -hmm. where people were exactly. And um, one of them was a new resident. It was like, it wasn't even a person right. who had been there very long. Right. So, yeah. um, so yeah, so that, that was, that was, that was maybe a little. It was, like, yeah, it was implied that he had given up something like quote unquote, like, like much better to mm. be building but you don't quite understand why yeah yeah you we, we needed someone to try and save the building like you're still like i don't get it i don't know why he cares so much exactly exactly and i think it's probably what it's the same we're all talking about the same thing which is there's mm -hmm. too much story here for the amount of time that a single film will allow like exactly. it actually it, even though it's not i don't think it isn't it it feels as though it could have easily been a novel to movie situation where they have all sorts of hanging threads. It's a little bit better than some of the worst of those because they they do address a lot of that. It's enough that we understand the characters, but there's there's just so much more. We just get little bits of certain things where um, it's sort of like a too much to not be important and to just be interest. Like uh, mm -hmm. 
Robert Rodriguez yeah. does great things in his movies where he gives these little bit characters just a little spark of interest that makes them fascinating, even if they die five minutes later. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't give you so much that you feel invested and then you feel kind of like, but what the fuck happened with that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and I don't think this one really fails that heavy on that because it is a long movie. So they do cram. Everybody has some parts in there. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it does feel in often cases like character studies rather than uh, a, uh, a full arc for anybody, really. Mm. Um, right. It's like instead of taking 10 things and doing them all like a little bit, they really should have picked like three. Right. And, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like okay. wove them through the story. Just because we're running out of time, I want to jump back because I got, I got continuations on this point that I want to talk about. So the second thing in that opening, right? Like, so we're giving like kind of this like sentimental feeling to this building. Like we want it to live. Like we want this building to survive. Uh, the other thing that they did well was uh, the knock, knock crew made you want the building to survive just in spite of the villains. Like you're just yeah. like, Oh, I, I just don't want this, vi- this, this, this building to get knocked down because of the villains. And because of like, just absolute, like out of the park, like great acting. Like that was like brilliantly done. Um, those there's so much like gravitas and like uh care in 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 making of that that uh, that character like unlikable but like not so unlikable that you didn't want to see more of them on the screen Mm -hmm. um but i think the thing that they missed was um in knowing a little bit about dementia moving a person from one like setting to another is very Mm -hmm. traumatic for somebody with dementia you're already confused about people and schedules and like what's going on adding yeah. like new environments you've never seen before is mm-hmm. stressful. Um, yeah. And so they never use that as like a plot device to be like, no, we have to stay in this building. Like we right. have to be here. Like we can't move because it's going to cause Faye more pain. Right. They'd, now, have to, thought, they'd have had to acknowledge the dementia, right. Which nobody seems to do, which is kind of part of the point. Right. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But I mean, I felt like that was, like kind of like a low hanging fruit for like how to kind of drive what they were trying to do. Cause like at the end, you know, when this, this building is rebuilt, you're kind of like, yay. You you know what I mean? It's like, okay. Like if, if you, if they had really done a good job of like selling the importance of this building, that move, that moment would have felt really triumphant. And it would have been like, the building is back ah, you know, tears falling. I'm feeling so happy for all of these people because, you know, this building is back. But really, like, a lot of their problems had kind of been resolved before, right? Yeah. you know, before that final moment. Like, like, yeah, didn't get their way. Like, well, like, I I expected, like, I didn't exactly, I didn't really feel that much that the building was rebuilt. I felt happy for Harry, the maintenance guy, because he was so devastated by the building. Like clearly that was all he had. And so when they come back and visit him personally, while he's the only one there, that's a sweet moment. Um, Mm -hmm. I do want to touch on one sort of thematic element to this film that we haven't really touched on, which I think is not necessarily obvious unless you're like me and obsessed over things, which is the sort of, man-made and city and civilized man-made elements as nature in this because think about it this way so you have the building right the building is the only thing standing like a tree trunk the aliens are very much like birds they're literally finding a place to make a nest Mm -hmm. and have the nest 
and then they leave. So it's really this case where we've got, and yet it it follows into that idea, which I'm sure was in the brain of of, um, Brad Bird and the other writers and Mick Garris when he was creating the story is like, okay, this is definitely a case where we are saying that there is soul, so to speak, in these creations, even though they're not natural or physically alive in the way we understand it. So, um, and both the building as a tree that everyone lives and thrives off of, the nature that provides, um, and the robots, which are, as he said, they're like, they're cans, you know what I mean? They're like, they're metal. They're not what we would see and think that's alive, but they're clearly alive. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was an interesting theme to run through. It was sort of a weird, not anti-nature pro-man stance. Like, they're like procreation stance, like things creations are important and have and have uh, a similar importance to to biological life and that doesn't degrade the importance of natural you know and nature it's really just separate or parallel to it which i thought was a really interesting thing because usually especially in a movie that has a a family movie that is supposed to have a message quote unquote normally um you know it would be fern gully like expansion's wrong mankind is on the wrong path we destroy everything we touch and it's evil. This is like, no, this is like life is life and it's progressing and we need to respect it as we do everything else. So I thought that was an interesting thing that normally we don't see like, cause expansion is problematic, mm-hmm. right? In this film, yet what they're trying to save is not a tree, you know, in what mm-hmm. we would think. So that, but it's still, but it is kind of a tree. So it's sort of like seeing things differently you know, seeing yeah. life in things that are not living. I thought it was just an interesting yeah. It's a idea. tree in the sense of it's where those people put down roots. Yeah, it right. was, yeah. yeah. The and the it sustains tons of life forms, right? I yeah. mean, how many yeah. things live in a tree? So there's def- right. it's definitely a metaphor. And I think that it's easy to miss that. But once you connect the fact that, uh, oh, they're, the aliens are birds. I mean, in, mm-hmm. in every sense, like they're birds. I mean, they fix things. I don't know that birds fix anything, but they, they built a nest, they have their eggs, they raise them to fly. They literally have the flying scene where they're throwing the walking babies down the stairwell because they know that they're gonna fly, they're fledglings. Um, and then you have that. So I thought that that was, that was fascinating to have this sort of you know, robotic and life form, you know, biological life paralleled in that way. Well, I say, so you've just brought up, brought me to actually my second point uh, of why I didn't think this movie like worked was there was, it was two, there was like two tones, right? Like the little robots and the cutesiness was like for family and like, you know, you know, the whole family get together and like get the, the kids something that they'd like that, you know, you can also tolerate. Um, but there's so many elements in this that were really heavy. In in, mm-hmm. in in like the overall thing was still light but like you have dementia you have you know uh you really deep into like development and is development like really good um you know like is it better to take down this house and build a more efficient structure that will house more people and you know is you know is this life of this little robot creature that did that is stillborn is that life you know is that meaningful you know there's like that existential bit to it mm-hmm. you know there's just that unrequited love uh you know the death of a, a child it was just there was just so many heavy elements in it it was right. like it was like half like a really like intense drama like with you know really serious 
hard to talk about issues and then a cute little robot story. Um, I think the cute little robot story won in the end because it, it still feels like a kind of a light flick. Um, but it, it just, it, it didn't really understand what it was, I think. It didn't. Um, is, is that the case or might it be too that um, it's hearkening back to an older time of family and children's books? Because now, and I, maybe. I'm, and I'm one of those people who I really, I have to be really geared up for something sad. And I don't often tread that. I, that's one of the reasons why I like cult cinema. There can be horrible things that happen in cult cinema, especially my favorite, which is 70s drive-in movies. Yet there seems to, even if it's really realistic, there's at no point in time where we don't know that this is a movie. Whereas yeah. other things like um, like really heartbreaking dramas like Shadowlands or something where characters have these intense emotions on screens and they're dealing with things that can affect us in everyday lives, that can be really crushing. Like, especially if you're, I call myself a trauma sponge, right? Like if I get too yeah. much around me, I break down on that. So this- I was gonna say in Fog is that movie for me. I don't know yeah. that yeah. one, but yeah. oh. Exactly, wow. I can't handle that. Can't handle that. Oh, too uh, much. But we've got, but in this case, like, look at like, it's more like a Charlotte's Web, right? Granted, it's still pretty heavy, but like Charlotte's Web opens with a dad going to butcher a piglet. Yeah. And it ends with a child learning about death and birth. Like in the middle, it's adorable and it's fun. But then you have these really heavy elements in it that are sort of the cornerstones of it. I don't think this one is structured exactly that way, but I think that might've been the mindset is that mm. we can have these heavy elements in this other life. And I do it still goes along then with the idea that these these robot things are birds because they're sort of unaffected by this, right? Like they're sort of, they're symbiotic, but really they're just non-malicious and mildly helpful. Um, yeah. And then they're there for a purpose and then they're going to go. Yeah, it's very Miyazaki. Like it's like yeah. these, these characters were very Miyazaki-esque. Uh, That's true. You know, they're just, they're just there. They're not there for you. You know, they're just, you know, relatively be benevolent and so you just happen to, if you put kindness out there, you get a little bit back. It's like, it's really that kind of Miyazaki character-esque. Um, but I, I mean, I, I do think that like, like for, for example, right? Like normally in this type of film, you have a little kid, right? That is the, like the, the point of entry for children, but it is also the, the, the story element of the innocent view, the naive view of things, right? Mm -hmm. Is the one that's looking at these creatures and being like, oh, they're just beautiful, like, cute little things where everybody else is like, no, they're robots. Maybe they're military spy bots right. or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and so the, this older lady with dementia was kind of that little kid character for us, the one that was yeah. viewing this from the kind of the naive and innocent um, An angle. untainted perspective, yeah. Yeah, and I think that I, I like it now just because, like, I like it, you know, having, you know, gone through that type of stuff just having a little bit of difference in kind of my thing and not always have the same thing but i think for kids yeah i don't think that they had that way into this film because it was you know like you know it starts out with kind of like these old-timey photos like what are we what are yeah. we watching yeah you know and then i agree i agree and i mean that that plays maybe mandy to the fact that you're like i was a 35 year old eight-year-old like you know what I mean? Like it's, it's one of those things where, cause I do think, cause I mean, it takes a while for the aliens to show up. And like you said, both of you said the aliens are not the star of the show, really. Um, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a sort of an intergenerational family drama. Um, yeah. But it has really sweet moments. So we're going to, we're going to wrap it up. Cause this movie, there's so many pieces to this movie and so many stories that there's just, which is part, part of its 
I wouldn't say downfall because I don't think it failed utterly, but I don't think it's as successful as it could have been. Obviously, we wouldn't be talking about it on a Forgotten Films podcast. Um, I think uh, it's it's just there's too many elements in here. Um, then they decided to keep them rather than drive focus towards one or two or three. Yeah. Um, so we're going to start off. Mandy, who would you recommend this movie to and why? Oh, um, every uh, eight going on 35-year-old out there in the world, I see you, you know, <laughs> you'll enjoy this film. Um, and then also just, I guess, like people who like those feel-good family movies, maybe you're looking to watch something with your kids um, that's not so modern. Uh, it might have a different storytelling feel to it. Like, go for it. This one's a good one. Fair enough. Jeff, who would you yeah. recommend this movie to and why? Watch it with your family. If you got a family, you got kids, watch it with your family. They might not get into it, but you know, that's the risk, right? They might they might love it and you might actually then be able to have some of these conversations about some of these the topics that they bring up in the film with them. So I, I think it's uh, I think it's a good I, I do think it's still a good family film. I understand why it didn't like, you know, become the you know I'm trying to think of one in that period. It's not the ET, right? Right. Of of uh, the mid '80s or whatever. Yeah. I think those are those are fair. In the, the um, uh, what's not? Oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking. Johnny Five is alive. Yeah, yeah. Oh, short circuit. Short circuit. Yeah, short circuit. So it's not the short circuit. Right. Uh, and and I would even period. hazard to say short circuit might even be a little closer than than like uh et just because it has a it has it death in it right like i mean there's a little bit mm -hmm. of, of 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 those adult elements working into it and that's why mm -hmm. i think i think it's interesting to see this movie in those in-between years you know the um as an adult i actually found a lot to talk about in this movie so i recommend this to adults for sure um but i also recommend it to watch with kids who are maybe preteen or early teens or 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 you know early early preteens like that whole range because they're going to get some of the heartfelt moments and it's going to affect them. And they may be, they may be like me as a kid and hate movies that make me sad. And then as an adult, see them and be like, I get it. Like, I know that I knew that I understood it enough to be sad. Now I understand it enough to see the totality of, of it and its purpose. So mm. I think that that's an interesting, interesting way to look at it. And, uh, that's going to do it for us on this episode of Cult and Classic. Please go ahead and leave reviews on your favorite podcasting platform if you like us. If you don't like us, um, donate so we can do better at cultandclassicpodcast.com. As always, here is The Chud to play us out. You can visit The Chud at facebook.com slash thechudband. And uh, again, visit cultandclassicpodcast.com to find out what's going on with us. Send us an email at cultandclassicpodcast at gmail.com. This has been Nate Wyckoff with Mandy Longley and Jeff Tucker. Thank you so much and have a great day. Bye. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.